Let's have some encouragement for the worship team this morning. Praise the Lord. Thankful for, thankful for those who serve us in their gifts in worship and music. Well, good morning, and I uh, want to encourage us to stay in the place of worship. I think, uh, yep, we've got some activities outside for the kids, so enjoy that, boys and girls. All right, well, welcome. Glad you're here this morning. I uh, want to let you know we're continuing in worship. We're continuing in our series uh, on the life of David, and um, we're going to be looking at the consequences of David's sin. But before we do that, I just want to give you a little analogy from the world of golf. You know, if you hit a golf ball and you don't quite hit it right, it'll look okay for the first 50 yards, maybe even for the first 80 to 100 yards. But eventually, because you did not hit it right, it's going to start. And then, if there's wind or some other external trouble, it's going to start veering off of course. And if you can hit that golf ball 250 yards, by the time it lands, it's going to be out of bounds. And in the very similar way, what looks like something that will be acceptable, workable for the little bit at the beginning of our life or in the early stages of our life, by the time we get to the end of our life, we will be out of bounds, out of bounds with God. And this is precisely what happens to King David and to King David's family. So at the end of last week, we saw that uh, King David's sin was forgiven by God. God extended grace. But now uh, he also, through the prophet Nathan, uh, issued some prophecy. I want to draw your attention to Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter 10, 12, verses 10 to 12. And we were on this last week. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who will be close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. So this morning's message is entitled Family Consequences. We're actually going to see there's family consequences to what David did, but there's also national consequences. And uh, this is going to be very relevant to where we find ourselves today uh, in our nations. Uh, in our nation. So when we choose accommodation and disobedience over discipline and obedience, we will see the fruit of our decisions. And so today's big idea is partly bad news and partly good news. The big idea, I think we've got it up here, is family consequences are a result of the principles of sowing and reaping. God has made inviolable principles that 
what we sow is what we're going to reap. If we sow sin, we will reap death. And also, there's the principle of generational sin. That is, what we, those in authority over the next generation, what we tolerate as sin becomes accepted by subsequent generations. This is a spiritual work that the enemy brings about in our lives. But thanks to the cross of Christ, here comes the good news, thanks to the cross of Christ, generational sin and the, the results of generational sin can be overcome by the beautiful biblical processes of confession, repentance, and forgiveness. So we're going to take a look at that today and see how that plays out. Today's outline, we've got a lot of text today. I gave you seven chapters to read today, plus a psalm. Uh, so the, here's the outline. It's in three parts. First of all, we see the effects of unaddressed sin tear a family apart. A family is torn apart by the effects of unaddressed sin. And then we'll stop and do some Q&A. Then second part, a nation is torn apart by families with unaddressed sin. So we'll see how this escalates out of the families into the nation. And then thirdly, uh, we'll look at application lessons that we can apply for our families, our churches, and our nation uh, even today. So uh, let me pray. Father, as we think about the life of King David and the consequences that you allowed in his life, the New Testament, Lord, says that these stories are for our edification. These stories are to help us understand the way you operate and what is good and right for us. So I pray now that the Word of God would speak deeply to each person here present and also online. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. And would you guys welcome Jamie? He's going to come up and help me do this uh, message today. Jamie, brother, welcome. All right. So the first section today shows how uh, sin tears a family apart. And it starts with multiple wives. It doesn't stop and tell us in the text this is a bad idea, but multiple wives means multiple children, means children vying for the father's attention. It almost creates... Uh, it almost creates a orphan spirit because one child is going out, you know, trying to get the attention of the father and who's going to take over and who's going to be here in the kingdom and who's going to have this seat, who's going to have that seat. Whereas God's plan for family is that there is one family working together uh, on behalf of the kingdom. So uh, the three parts here in the first section is Amnon, who's the oldest son of David, uh, wants to have Tamar, who is the daughter of another wife of David, the younger sister of uh, brother Absalom. And uh, Amnon takes this into his own hands, and we have, first of all, manipulation by his pal Jonadab, but we then have incest in the family as Amnon takes his sister. It's an echo of Bathsheba, right? It's an echo of what David did to Bathsheba. So we start to see the pattern repeating in the next generation. Then uh, because uh, there is anger on David's part, but no action, 
He was angry, but he took no action. Then Absalom takes it into his own hands, and now we have uh, a plot for murder, and then eventually that murder is executed, and it's executed in the very same way that David executed. It's executed, in David's case, by Joab, uh, even after David tried to make Uriah marry with wine, and the same thing happens to Amnon. He's married with wine, and Absalom has his, uh, his men kill him. And then the result of that is, uh, again, an echo of what, what David did to Uriah. And so we have this situation where David has been passive, he's been gullible on multiple occasions, and then he has not taken in, he's not taken and given these these sons of his discipline, and they are a law unto themselves. There's a lack of discipline, and uh, the son of the king tries to do, can do, and is led to do whatever he wants. And so we have lack of discipline, and we come now to the part where they're estranged, and Joab is... Uh, manipulating the situation so that David will forgive Absalom. But David can't forgive Absalom because Absalom, by the law, is wanted for murder. So Joab figures out this convoluted way that David can forgive Absalom. And so we get this staged situation where without repentance... Joab brokers reconciliation and reconciliation without repentance is only going to lead to more rebellion. Let me say that again. Reconciliation without repentance is only going to lead to more rebellion and that's precisely uh, what happens in this first section, chapters 13 and 14. So I want to just maybe turn over to Jamie uh, for a few thoughts on that, and then we'll open it for your questions and comments. Yeah, just as a, as a dad and a leader, I just think to myself about this issue of passivity in our leadership. The fact that David was angry. I mean, the, the text is clear in verse 21 of chapter 13. David was, when he heard these things, when he heard about this um, mm-hmm. this incest that's happening in his family. He was angry, and he did nothing. And I, he's, he is sowing something that is coming, right? Because he feels this is not right, and he's the leader. He needs to take responsibility for the family. He needs to take responsibility for what's happening in his family. And so I just think about my own life. Every time I have been in relationships, whether it's family or others in the church or in, in my work life, and stuff gets funky. Y'all know what I'm talking about? When relational, it gets funky. Like, I, all of a sudden I go, huh, something doesn't feel right. Something's not good. Like, I, I feel a disconnect of some sort with this other person. Every time I've let that go and I was passive, oh, it's just me, I'm just feeling something, don't. Anytime I've let that go, it has come back to bite me in the end. Mm-hmm. So the Spirit has been given to us to, to prick us in those moments. So when you feel like something's funky with another family member, don't let it go. Are y'all hearing me? Don't let it go. 
If, if you're in, the, in a work environment and something feels off with a coworker or a supervisor or someone you're supervising, something feels off, don't let it go. Engage. So these emotions that we have, he's angry, but no action, cost him. And it cost his family. So just as an encouragement to you, don't be passive. When things feel funky and feel off, don't be passive in those moments. Questions, thoughts, comments. And if you're online, if you have any questions or thoughts, uh, put those in the chat and somebody will send that to Dennis and I. Any questions in the room? I think, I think Kofsky's got uh, a microphone, so. Have you guys had those kind of experiences? Where something seems off relationally? Yeah, one of the things going on in David's life is, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but he's, he's lost. He doesn't have moral authority in his family because his own stuff hasn't been dealt with. You know, we're going to talk about, okay, when that happens, what do you do? That'll be one of our lessons at the end. But, you know, part of the challenge he's got here is he's got no leg to stand on with his kids because he's never dealt with what happened before. All right. Well, um, we'll keep going. And um, if you've got more you want to pipe in with, please do that. So the second part of this story is that the, 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 the sin has broken into and started tearing a family apart. But now we see how the family's sin spills over into an entire nation because now Absalom is moving into taking over the kingdom. He's usurping the kingdom from his father by making his father look bad. He says, I want to go to Hebron. Uh, I made a vow, you know. It's, it's, it's the, same, the same thing David said when he was trying to avoid Saul. He said, I got to go... I got to go to, my, to Bethlehem. To, I made a vow. I'm going to have a sacrifice with my family. Same, same almost you know, sin excuse is echoing again through the life. And, and Absalom is coming after his father. So reconciliation without repentance leads to more rebellion. Now, now Absalom not only uh, is back in town, but he's usurping the kingdom from his father and he's going to actually go after the death of his father. And in the midst of all of this uprising, there is a turning point in this story. The turning point in this whole story happens uh, in chapter 15, near the end of chapter 15, verse 25. And David is now uh, outside of Jerusalem and they've got the ark there and everything, almost as if like, okay, well, Absalom might be coming, but David's got the ark. And David says to Zadok, the priest, he says, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. So now we begin to see David, the, it's starting to dawn on David what's going on. And a little bit later, he's talking to some of his officials in chapter uh, 16, verse 11. He says, David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite named Shimei who's cursing him? 
Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. So David is now assuming that Shimei may have been sent by God. Let It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. So what we see here in this turning point is David is now recognizing he relinquishes the ark, he accepts God's judgments, he sheds tears of repentance, he prays for God's intervention, he remembers the covenant that God has made with him, he's refreshed in the Lord. And it's, it's the moment that David is back squarely in the hands of God. And it's the inspiration for the third psalm that he wrote, Psalm number three. I'm going to turn it over to Jamie and just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, Sherry Collins online said, there's a stark contrast between David's leadership as a king and military leader versus being a leader of his family. I think that's a really good point. Uh, in the military, when the commander says go, everyone goes. And, and if the commander is passive and is not making and giving instructions and saying, this is the plan, this is what we're doing, then the army itself is, is flailing. Well, his family is flailing because he's not leading. He's passive. Uh, yeah, Psalm 3 is actually the, the superscript says, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And Psalm 3 is literally right here in the story. This is what the psalm says. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. It strikes me. <laughs> I'm trying to decide if this is a fair way to say it. In David's life, he's on the run again here. Right? So he leaves the royal city. He's on the run again. It's almost like being on the run helps David remember the Lord again. You know what I'm saying? It's like, don't waste a good crisis in your life. Go ahead and, and yield to the Lord again. Mm -hmm. In fact, could it be, obviously this is David's sin. David did this to himself. But could it be that Yahweh said, yeah, let's let some crisis come into David's life so he'll remember who he should trust. Some of you are in situations where you think, oh, I'm going through this because I did something wrong. What if the Lord is wooing you back to himself? What if you just waste this time of crisis by not seeking the Lord? Like, if I'm going to go through something, I don't want to waste that time. And the Father's agenda in your life and in my life, when we go through difficult, when we're on the run, where it feels combative somehow, when things are pressing in on us, the Father's heart in that moment is to draw us back to himself. And many times we waste those moments because we don't go to him. We try to figure it out on our own. 
But it's in that moment, David's on the run, and then he begins to trust God again. He's trusting the Lord. Yeah, that's good. So, that last song we sang, Run to the Father, Run to the Father, because his desire is to have us. His desire is for us. So, uh, look, look at how the story continues. The next thing we see is that Absalom is deceived by his lust for power. Because in chapter 16, verse 15 and following, we, we hear now that he's got his uh, counselors around him, and there's a, there's a particular counselor named Ahithophel. Ahithophel uh, is an interesting name. It means my brother is foolish. <laughs> Ahithophel. And if you look around 2 Samuel, you can actually figure out who Ahithophel is. In chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, verse 34, we find out, find out he's the father of Eliam. And earlier in 2 Samuel 11, verse 3, we found out that Eliam is the father of Bathsheba. So Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. Ahithophel has an axe to grind with David ruined the honor of his daughter so now Ahithophel is the counselor uh, in the royal house but David has another guy Hushai the archite and he sends him into the mix and Hushai says uh, I'm going to serve you I served your father I'm going to serve you praise be to God so Ahithophel gives his counsel and the first part of his counsel is go on the roof of the palace and have at it with the ten concubines publicly and then from a war standpoint take 12,000 crack troops and go kill them tonight but Hushai the archite says "Uh uh-uh Ahithophel's counsel which is normally 24 karat gold is right now not very good and Hushai the archite says don't do that David has vicious men with him he's like a mama bear without her cubs he will destroy 12,000 guys. Get all of Israel and go down there. And then it says that Absalom says, well, this time the, the council of Hushai the archite is better. So he goes on the, on the rooftop and then they get ready and they mobilize and David knows what they're going to do. Now Ahithophel is a brilliant strategist. He already knows that Absalom is dead. He knows he's dead. So he goes home, and his revenge for Bathsheba ends up in suicide. So we already know from the, the, the princess bride that revenge is a terrible business. <laughs> revenge, does not, revenge does not work. So Ahithophel hangs himself. The story unfolds, and of course, Absalom goes into the forest with essentially all of Israel, but now instead of having 12,000 crack troops, he's got a huge volunteer army who don't really know what they're doing. And so the forest, it says in chapter 18, is going to take more lives than the actual battle will. And so sure enough, Absalom is riding around on his mule, and he, he's got 15 pounds of hair, or sorry, five pounds of hair, uh, and, but he gets stuck in, a, in an oak tree. And 
He's a, he's a rookie rider. Whatever the issue is, he's stuck. And Joab runs him through with three javelins and kills him. So Absalom is dead. He's a victim of the forest. The tribes are now back in. The soldiers, David's desperately, desperately broken. And now the soldiers are totally confused. Wait a minute. We were supposed to, this guy wanted to kill David. And now they're coming back and David's all sad. And Joab has to smack him around and say, listen, like all your army is now ashamed because of how you're acting. If you go on like this, you won't have a single soldier left. But David is totally compromised. He is totally compromised. He's got soul ties. He's got this broken son. He's got this dead son. He's got this broken family. And he's totally confused. And of course, because of this, the nation is divided. And you've got the people from the northern tribes uh, arguing with the people of the southern tribes and who's the king and who knows the king better. And finally, David asks his tribesmen from Judah to call him back to Jerusalem and he starts making his way back to Jerusalem. We're going to look at the reestablishment of his kingdom next week, but this is all happening and there's a lot of confusion and division. And it says there that Absalom put up a, a monument to himself, which shows you a little bit of the narcissistic character. And that, that pillar is still there. It, it, it seems pretty accurately that it was rebuilt in the first century B.C., so Absalom built it sometime in 1000 BC, but this is what it looks like today. Uh, and we have this monument to this narcissistic son who is never disciplined by his father, who, who looked good, but in the end was an empty suit. And we have this totally broken down family that has now spilled over it's spilled over and the whole country is divided. Begin to sound relevant to where we are today? Because the sin that broke out in David's family, lack of respect for marriage, lack of respect for sexual morality, lack of respect and responsibility, lack of discipline, spills over into taking a whole nation with them. And if we are honest and we look at the history of our nation, we see that very same pattern. Family after family after family after family falling apart. Selfishness, sin, brokenness, destruction. And now it's gotten to the point where it's spilling over into uh, everything about our national life together. So this is an extremely relevant picture of where we are today. Jamie? Yeah, when I read this section, um, the, the part that struck me is David down on his knees weeping and saying, Absalom, my son, my son. And you can hear the heartache of this father who, is, who has been enemies with his son. His son has been trying to kill him. The son has been dishonoring him, doing all kinds of things against him, spitting in his face, 
rejecting the family. And this son dies, and David is heartbroken. He says, my son, my son. And all of that, I don't know if you can hear it, but it's picturing something that's coming. There's a gospel shadow right there. A father looking at a son and saying, my son, my son. See, the gospel is this. You and I are the Absaloms to the father. The Bible says we were enemies of God, that he loved us when we were his enemies and against him. We were running away from him. We were rejecting his truth, and we were his enemies. And what the Father has done is he has sent his innocent son, Jesus, to die in our place. Absalom dies because he was an enemy of David. Jesus died as an innocent lamb because we were the enemies. Are you all seeing the reversal? There's a gospel reversal at play. You and I are the Absaloms who deserve to die. But Jesus, the innocent one, has died for us so that we could get back into relationship. What David wants, he says, I wish I could go to be with you. I wish we could switch places. Do you see the switching? David wants to be with even this one who is his enemy. And the Father in Christ has said, I want to be with you so much. I have come in human flesh to die for you. That truth reverses. That's the good news that reverses family dysfunction. Family is not a construct that humans came up with. Y'all know that, right? Like Adam and Eve weren't the first family. God himself is family. He is a father, son, and spirit from eternity past. He has always been in mutual yielded submission in family. So if we want to figure out how to bring healing and breakthrough to our families and thus to our nation, it's about what does it look like to become a family? That's what it is in the Father, Son, and Spirit. So the gospel is the antidote to these broken things in our lives. Can you hear the father looking at his innocent boy saying, my son, my son, and he was pleased to put him to death for you and for me. The prophet Isaiah says. Yeah. Gospel reversal. So sweet. And, and, and just remember, when Jesus was on his knees in Gethsemane, saying, not my will, but yeah. your will be done, yeah. he was probably literally on the spot where David was barefoot walking out towards the Mount of Olives in shame. Same spot. Same spot. And there's no doubt that Jesus has this story in mind in the midst of his agony. Let's open it up. You guys seeing the hope of this? The, the, the disaster? I mean, I'm trying to make us see the disaster of it, the bad news, but look at the good news. Look at the good news. Yeah. So there is lots of hope. Um, 
my family has gone through many um, many eras in the past, um, generational, and just in this in this generation, we have started to follow Christ and the difference that he has made is day and night uh, the Lord has been so uh, wonderful and uh, redeeming and there is more to be done yet but um, I see the light at the end of the tunnel yeah praise be to God yeah Where is the difference between the curse on a family because of generational sin and then children simply not accepting Christ because of free will? Is there a separate? Because I'm sitting here with three unsaved kids, like, wanting to just cry because is it something that I did in my past or that my father did or my grandfather did that is keeping three of my kids from heaven right now and I and I'm and I'm I'm bought in 110 percent with God and what he will do in my family but I'm still struggling with is there hope for unsaved kids because of something that I did in my youth that I'm forgiven for, but I still have the curse. Just like David was forgiven, but he still has, you know, like I, I, get, I get the good news, but I don't see it yet. Yep. So that, that, comes, that comes into our first lesson. Let me, let me jump into our first lesson because I think that's a great question. The lesson is, you know, there's no such thing as private sin, right? There's no such thing. Our sin affects us, and it affects our generations. But we can win the spiritual battle because of Jesus. So what I would say to your direct question would be, if there is something that God shows you that, you know, is part of your lifestyle and part of your family dynamic, then... Your, your calling is to repent of that, confess it to your children, ask for forgiveness, and then pray together that that, that curse stops right there. But there seems to be something of the power of confessing to the next generation. And if there isn't anything, if, if you ask God and there isn't anything, then you're part of the story where you have to keep praying and waiting. But this idea of coming uh, into generational sin, so, you know, I, I talk to men all the time about pornography. By the grace of God, the, the curse uh, was on our family, and I repented of that. It doesn't mean that none of my kids ever experimented with it, but it means that 
by confessing this and declaring it wrong, that has been broken as something over our family, as opposed to my experience with pornography laying around the house. So there's a big difference. Same goes with anger. Same goes with gluttony. Same goes with problems with alcohol. Uh, we looked at our family line and we saw all kinds of smoking and all kinds of premature death and all kinds of alcoholism. So as we, as we put a fork in that and say, no, this is not going to be the way of our family. This is wrong. You know, we confess that. Then it brings it into the light. And I think it's in that situation that the gospel can bring generational healing. Does that make sense? Okay, so repent, confess to our children. When we confess to our children our anger or our uh, lack of patience or our constant gluttony, it breaks the effect of that sin over our families. It also reminds everybody that we are all under the role, the rule of Christ and the rule of the scriptures and of the Holy Spirit and of the Father. This is, it's not, the parents are not running the house. God's running the house. And we are teaching them that. Um, now we bring, now we restore, by our confession, we restore our moral authority because we've agreed with God what's right. By confession and repentance and forgiveness, we remove the uh, reproductive effort of the enemy in our lives and we win the spiritual battle. And we establish a perimeter around our families that agrees with God and that does not welcome the enemy. So this is, this is a crucial bit of good news of how we apply the gospel into the spiritual authority of our homes. And we call sin, sin. We confess. We're all on the same page. And we're all, and especially if we're having communion regularly together and we're confessing our sin, we're teaching the next generation how the gospel actually works. How you bring it into operation. Does that make sense? All right. I think some of this is tied to here in the West, we have a, just a radical individualism so that everything is just about me. And in, in this culture, the culture of, of the biblical text, it is not about the individual. It's about the collective. It's about the family. And so this, help, this is a challenge to us individualistic Westerners mm -hmm. that when Jamie sins, it affects Bailey, Caden, and Jess. And my individualistic mind just goes, no, I'm just going to be me. I'm just, it's just me. And I may even just rationalize it. Like, oh, I'm just doing this sin, whatever. It's, you know, I'll deal with it, me and the Lord, which is jacked up thinking, right? But no, there is an effect on my kids. And there's an effect on us as family, church family. Like, it affects us. We're, we're, we're the body of Christ. So your sin doesn't just harm you, it harms us. And it's really, I think it's hard for us individualistic types 
to get that. That there, there, is, there is a collective. And it's not the Borg, like, you know, Star Trek reference. It's not some sort of collective like that. But there is something at play that we need each other. And so um, in the men's ministry, we're partnering with the men's ministry to create a, a thing called Man Forum. And we referenced this last week just briefly. I just wanted to give a heads up to all the guys um, if you're an active member of MCC, you've already been put into this forum. Uh, it's, an, it's in the Church Center app, so what Mark was talking about earlier. What we're doing with this is this is a place where guys can text, prayer request, can text, hey, I'm struggling with this. I need help. Or also engage with some of the older, wiser. Like, as a young dad and as a young leader, I love the fact that I get to be around Dennis and the elders and the other leaders of this church. So as a younger dad and a younger leader, I want to encourage you, get in here and text. If you're, if you're not sure about something in business, text, right? We want to engage with the older um, dads and older leaders in our group. And we're going to have a kickoff Zoom this Wednesday, this coming up Wednesday night, 830 to 9. Uh, you should get an email about that from Rob. And if you didn't, then email rj, rjseaton at gmail.com. So, um, the reason we're doing that is because we need each other. This isn't just about Jamie and his relationship with God. It's about our church family walking in holiness and purity together. So that's, that's a little bit of what we're seeing in this first lesson. So uh, look forward to hanging out with you guys Wednesday night and get this thing kicked off. Um, second lesson, and uh, it's, it's very simple. Do not sweep sin under the carpet because you are desperate for a relationship. I think sometimes we are tempted as parents to want to be liked, to want to be liked, uh, to want to be the heroes. But any time we uh, sweep sin under the carpet because we're desperate for a relationship, we're usually practicing unsanctified mercy. We're usually practicing the idea of, uh, you know, overlooking sin, which is going on rampantly in David's family, overlooking the painfully obvious truth. And uh, this idea of, you know, reconciling without repentance leads just to more rebellion. So what we need to do is we need to practice discipline. That is, that's the, the thing that we need to practice. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 to 11, the author says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So it's an encouragement, obviously, to allow ourselves day by day to be trained and broken by the Spirit of God in our, in our own sin, but it also encourages us as fathers and mothers to bring discipline into our families, to leave uh, a legacy where when that son gets married or when that daughter gets married, 
they understand authority, they understand submission, they understand obedience, and they can be a fully functioning part of society. And this is, this is crucial to a church. It's crucial also to the nation, isn't it? When we think about, you know, the obedience to orders from the police, to the obedience to a speed limit, to the obedience to whatever it is. It is the foundation of our, of our well-being. And then lesson number three, I'm going to throw that out and then we'll give you a chance to do some I will statements. When we have unaddressed personal and family sin, it eventually disrupts churches and nations. Passivity, divisiveness is all rebellion. Family breakdown, that's affecting the culture. Uh, I was shocked this week to hear this report that the Pope had come out to say that he was in favor of civil unions of same-sex couples. And uh, technically, in the Catholic Church, what he said was completely unauthorized. So I don't, I don't know how the Catholic Church is going to handle it. But he, his own motivation is to have relationship with the gay, lesbian, transgender community to show them that he cares. And the, the sad thing is, this is going to be absolutely rejected by any biblical person in the Catholic Church, and it's going to be absolutely rejected by the LGBT community because it does not go far enough for them. And so you have this accommodation to the culture and it is completely unsatisfactory. You are trying to have relationship, you are trying to, but you are completely alienating everyone because it's not truth. It won't last. It won't bring anything. So the failure, right, right, it's, it's not going to bring about any reconciliation with God. So the failure to uphold marriage the failure to uphold biblical sexuality, the idea of having a law unto ourselves, the lack of moral authority and clarity has completely ruined David, his family, and the nation of Israel. And the very same things are having the very same effects on families, uh, on churches, and on our nation as a whole. So there is a profound lesson in this for us that these decisions that are made in the quiet place to bend the knee to the creator to obey the creator to walk with Jesus to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit have profound consequences and even in the midst of an upside down nation they can result in a strong thriving family and even in the midst of a broken culture, they can result in a thriving church. And it is a thriving church that will bring an effect into the community. But if we're not thriving, if our families are not thriving, then the gospel witness 
is nowhere. So this is an encouragement to you and me, all of us, that we are, like Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, we are to be like shining stars in a crooked and perverse generation holding out the word of life. And this message this morning has been from Jesus himself. This is the word of life. He is the word of life. And he is now speaking clearly into each of you. Do not be discouraged. Don't give up. Children can be trained. We can repent. We can get things right in our families. We can get things right in our generations. We can keep praying for the salvation of our prodigals. The prayers of righteous men and women availeth much. Do not give up. This is, this is our calling to stand in the middle of chaos and to bring the shalom of the gospel, the shalom of the kingdom. And this is what I know many of you are doing. And I just want to encourage you. It's hard. It's difficult. But do not quit. And you young people, do not quit. Everyone around you may be wanting to do something else. But you stand. You stand for the truth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Before we close, I uh, just want to mention one thing. Because as churches are getting to be more tuned in to what is actually going on around us, we are recognizing the spiritual battle. We are recognizing the power of prayer. We're recognizing the power of worship. And Raz has just finished a worship album called Dangerous and Beautiful. And that is going to be premiering on all streaming platforms on November 18th. The day before that, on November 17th, from 7 to 9 p.m., at the Vineyard in Tri-County, we're going to have an evening with all 18 musicians from all eight churches who were part of making this album. We're going to worship the Lord and dedicate this time of worship to Him uh, before the album is released. So uh, there will be more information on that, but put that date in your calendar November 17th, there'll be enough room to gather five or 600 people in this facility with social distance. So um, we want to make that a time where we stand together as a church in the city for the things of God. All right, so we're going to open it up for a minute or two here for I will statements, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer and close us. Um, this is an I will statement, it's just something that I've been studying. There's a science called neuroplasticity. It's basically showing us that um, the brain isn't a fixed map, that it's actually able to rewire itself. Um, and so when damage is done from alcohol, from abuse, um, pornography, any, any number of things, there, there's an ability for the brain to recover from um, whatever trauma or turmoil it's had. And so um, something that I've really been applying with neuroplasticity is when you make a mistake with your children, um, there's more, um, there's a greater effect happening in your children's brains and like the synapses and the ability to recognize 
um, good when you make a mistake with your children and you repent and apologize and um, and there's reconciliation through repentance. There's a greater amount of good happening in their brain than if you were to like never make a mistake. So I just think it's just really cool. Like it's not just like a the spiritual implications, but the Lord's like designed our brains to be able to respond to the fact that like we're going to make mistakes. There's going to be generational mistakes. And that there's an even greater amount Amen. of good happening when we confess our sins and um, just Amen. model for our children repentance. Good. That's, that's good, Sammy. Yeah, I think that's what Paul meant when, when he said, um, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, part of the transformation spiritually is happening in the mind. As the mind learns what is true what is right you know that that is part of the transformation anybody else you have anybody online uh, piping in no I will statements just a couple comments family also includes the church Sherry says that that's very true and then Dennis Spurgeon love precedes reconciliation is Dennis's comment love precedes reconciliation so yeah yeah, if you really love God, you'll leave your gift at the altar and you'll go and be reconciled, right? That, that's, that's, I think that's right. Love precedes reconciliation. That's good. Got time for one more? Short, I will not give up. Just don't give up. Stay in the fight. Get that, church? Hashtag, I will not give up. Scott Hobart. You go... You go uh, you go after that. Thank you, Scott. That's great. So if you need prayer today, we've got prayer. Uh, uh, we can pray out on the patio after service. And if you need prayer and you're online, then you can text uh, one of our confidential staff cell phones and we'll partner you with a remote prayer servant. And uh, our text for next Sunday are uh, 2 Samuel. This is the return of David to Jerusalem. Uh, 2 Samuel 20, 21. 23 verses 8 to 39 and 24. Uh, so we will, uh, let's just keep diving into the word together. We will see you next week. I'm just going to close uh, with a prayer uh, over us and uh, over our nation, uh, actually. Um, so, Lord, I thank you for each family here today. I pray, Father, that your spirit would encourage them, fill them, and guide them, that you would be exalted to bring repentance where it's needed, that you would bring forgiveness and reconciliation uh, at a very deep level, Lord, and you would encourage our families not to give up. Yeah. And Father, for our nation, uh, we see perhaps through the story of David more clearly than we might otherwise see it. We see what is happening. And we pray, Lord, um, for your church uh, to be a beacon of light in this season. And Lord, as we pray for our country, uh, I pray this, Lord. I pray that, Father, you would bring us out of our captivity to the American dream into the wider spaces of your kingdom. Father, bring us to repentance from the lie that the well-being of the church depends on the direction of our nation. 
free us from our obsession with politics and the ways they divide us. Forgive our idolatry, Lord, the false messiahs we have placed our hope in. Restore us to total and exclusive dependency on you, Lord. Help us love one another lavishly as your image bearers and co-heirs. Keep us united in seeking your kingdom's priority, proclamation, and demonstration. Remind us of the truth that you are our only hope, that you are the only one faithful enough to rely on, that you alone can deliver salvation, freedom, and shalom. We pray these things through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and with the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So I bless you, church. Have a great week.